Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hey, everybody. You are tuned to Deep Dive. The All Music Books Podcast, where we talk to authors of music books, bios, histories, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve J. We'd like to welcome today's guest, Ada Wolin, who wrote the book Golden Hits of the Shangri-Las, which is one of the entries in the 33 and a third series. Welcome, Ada. Hey, Steve. Thanks for having me. So I always like to talk about the pitch to 33 and a third because I've read a bunch of their books, and it's an interesting series, and it's kind of morphed over the years and become bit of a more free form for the author which i'm sure is fantastic <laughs> but do you want to give us your pitch to 33 and a third and what it is that you wanted to write about in this book i had a little bit of a unique experience they had an open call for writers under 22 ultimately i think i was still pitching more or less the same sort of way but my pitch was basically at the most simple form that the shangri-las belong in the rock and roll canon and i was really basing this on their music their cultural legacy their impact on, you know, rock bands to come. Somehow they have this huge cult following, but they've never been written about critically. So my idea was to say, there's so much in this music. We can obsess over the ideas on a rock album. Why can't we obsess over the ideas in this very strange greatest hits album? Wow, you opened up a lot there that I want to get into. (laughs) The first one being, so you mentioned you made the pitch at 22. So you're at least a generation removed from their golden years. Yeah. Let me ask you how you got into the band. When I made my pitch, I was a sophomore in college. I grew up listening to this music. When I heard about this opportunity, I was like, I have to do this. I was actually writing music reviews for my school paper at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. And my editor of the paper was like, you need to do this. And I really agonized over who I wanted to write about. And my kind of first options were all over the place. And I was one day, I was just taking the train and I was listening to the Shangri-Las and I thought, I need to write about this because this was something that was a huge part of my childhood because, you know, my parents were very much the generation that grew up hearing this and then grew up hearing the rock bands that were actually inspired by this music. So this was a huge part of my life. And it was also something that I felt in a way was so perfect to be, you know, where is my place as a young woman in music writing? Well, maybe I should use my platform to write about young women in music. It seemed kind of everything fell into place in a way that 
rarely happens in terms of these ideas. Well, I think that's a fascinating aspect of it, too, is your perspective as, as a young woman, but once or twice removed. I think it's fair to say that you have very strong thoughts about the Shangri-Las and their place, not only amongst girl groups, but in musical history. Can you fill us in on that? Like, where do they belong in musical history? It's hard because I, when I was writing this book, like with most, I think, probably good projects like this, you start with a thesis and then ideally... Mostly that's going to be proved correctly, but you're also going to learn something new that you didn't know before. And part of what I learned is I started this thinking, I'm going to prove that the Shangri-Las are a rock group, basically, and that they deserve to be thought of as such. But as I started really looking into the history of girl groups, I realized I'm really pitting the Shangri-Las against girl groups. I'm saying that they deserve to be talked about at the expense of other girl groups and saying basically that they are rebelling so much against the girl group trends that they are outside of that genre, which they really are not outside of that genre. So I think something that I ended up learning was that I had a lot of internalized issues with pop music that I needed to deal with in order to really talk about the Shangri-Las. That's interesting because you definitely want to pitch them kind of eliminating the world girl groups in a sense, right. but it's hard to do. And you write in your book that the term girl groups is, quote, surprisingly contested. You know how I use it in the book, and I do say that I'm using it in a very limited way. It has a very limited scope, which is that I'm talking about girl groups in the very, very late 50s to mid-60s, and mostly coming out almost exclusively from Motown and from the Brill Building, so from Detroit and from New York. And I, I set those perimeters because I think that we have this tendency to lump in any sort of female-fronted pop music from the 60s. So I mentioned in my book that Dusty Springfield is sort of lumped in on a lot of girl group compilation albums. And it's, you know, there's ties, but it's not as simple as saying she belongs in the sound of girl groups because, unfortunately, the, the name girl group is so, you know, it's such a blah title. It is so unevocative of any of the things that actually typify the sound. So when you really start to talk about that time in music, you start talking about wall of sound and you start talking about the influences from doo-wop and the call and response singing. And those things are really what define the sound. And I think by keeping it isolated to that, it's so much easier to talk about a genre that's become a little too vague, I think. Hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what you perceive as the cynicism surrounding the modern view of girl group music? Because it's changed radically since those days. And you touch on you know that several times throughout your book. What we're talking about is a different mode of production. So girl group, the girl group music was coming out of the Tin Pan Alley mode of production, which is this, it's almost music by committee. So Tin Pan Alley is the colloquial name for songwriters and publishers operating in Manhattan in the you know, later 19th and 20th centuries. It's this idea that you have songwriters and publishers who are hawking their music to performers and to producers. And the Brill Building, which is the sound that the Shangri-Las came out of, had this similar structure where you had these songwriters who were kind of just selling to the highest bidder, and they had this extremely high turnover. And that's why when you start looking into some of these girl group songs, you're seeing these songwriting pairs over and over listed in these really well-known songs. So they would more or less, these songwriters would pitch songs to producers and producers would sort of cherry pick performers to form groups. So I think that unfortunately, 
in this mode of production, you do have this extreme, you know, extreme abuse of power. You have these women performers who are, you know, they're not making any money off of it. They don't own the songs. They don't even own their own names. You have these issues that I think when we look back on this era of music, you see these women really being ill-used by the system. How can I listen to this music and not hear that these women are pawns? And I think that that is a really pervasive thing that, while coming from a very real place, ultimately, it is serving to remove the women from their own music. Instead of saying, you know, that we should think about this really problematic part of the history of girl group music, we're saying that these women were only pawns. They had no active role, which I think is reductive. And I think it actually victimizes them in a way that isn't really beneficial to the idea of women as singers having agency in their own music. Yeah, and to be clear, when you're talking about the ownership, it's usually the producer, the Phil Spector, yes. or sometimes the manager. The songwriters also clearly had a huge ownership issue, but not the actual performers, correct? Yes, it's interesting to compare the songwriters with the performers because the songwriters also, it was this idea that you wrote a song and then it was no longer yours. You sold it and it was gone didn't belong to you anymore. And in a way, that's sort of similar to the way that the performers interacted with the music, where they were incredibly important. But because I think part of the problem is that girl group music is really known for its technological innovation. And we really have this story of Phil Spector as this auteur producer, and that overwhelms every other part of the production. His kind of genius innovations mean that we don't even think about the songwriters, which now, you know, you think songwriting is really one of the most important things. But I think then they kind of got lost in the story, too. Right. It was more about the production. And, and certainly any Phil Spector story starts with Phil Spector. Right. <laughs> of course. So that's interesting because, you note like some obvious stylistic similarities within the genre of girl groups, so to speak. You point out various attitudes about sex and marriage, and I never listened that closely until you know I read your book and went through and did some research. But Chapel of Love or Today I Met the Boy I'm Gonna Marry is way different lyrically and coming from a different place than Be My Baby and Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow. Absolutely. And, you know, obviously writing this book, really I made it my job to listen to these songs that, you know, I mean, you hear some of these in the grocery store, you know? <laughs> it's thinking about these songs as, let me actually just listen to this five times in a row and think harder than hopefully anyone has thought about these because I, I think I thought really hard about these. <laughs> but Chapel of Love and Today I Met the Boy I'm Going to Marry, those really represent this idea that is really held against girl group music, which is that it's reactionary. It's this, you know, in this time when we're starting to see a sexual revolution, you have Chapel of Love, which is this really almost puritanical view of a young girl's life is to grow up and get married. That's just everything is going toward that point. So when you bring in something like Be My Baby, I mean, that song is purely about desire. There's no discussion of expectations. You know, it's a woman saying, I want this. It's kind of extreme when you even compare that with Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow, which, you know, that's a, a wonderful song by the Shirelles, but that sort of straddles the line of, experiencing this this liberation of knowing that you have choices with your sexuality, but also this great anxiety about it. There's some great do I or don't I questions that I have for you. I wanted to lay a little bit more of a foundation for your book. 
Yes, yes, exactly. And it, it really is, you know, do I or I don't or don't I? It's this kind of incredible moment of anxiety about experiencing this newfound sexual liberation. And what are the potential consequences of that? Early in your book, there's a platform I'll call popism versus rockism. And it's not something I really, you know, knew a lot about or at least knew how to articulate. Can you explain those concepts to our listeners? In their most simple, you know, clearest sense, rockism is really the idea that rock music is the only form of popular music that has artistic value. Um, I like to call it poptimism. Uh, I do enjoy the pun. So poptimism, on the other hand, makes the case more that pop music also deserves critical consideration. And I think the interesting thing about writing this book and, and getting on that platform about poptimism and rockism is that to be honest, I'm not a huge fan of contemporary pop music. That's something I, I address in my book, is that I think rock fans tend to uh, find it a little easier to stomach pop of, of yesteryear. It's different when you confront a rock fan with today's top 40. It's a little bit easier to look at the Shangri-Las and be like, well, yeah, this is good music. You don't have to live through this feeling of this is what everyone around me is doing, and I don't want to do the same thing as everyone else. So I think that the issues of optimism and rockism at the end of the day, it's not really about if you like Miley Cyrus or Taylor Swift or One Direction. I think one of the anxieties of rockist music writers is that if you don't like Beyonce, you're going to face the Poptimist firing squad. And that Poptimism is, you know, has this authoritarian inclusivity where it's like, if you say you don't like this, you are X, Y, and Z, and you are really saying this and this and this. But I think on the other hand, in Poptimism's most sensible moments, it, what it's ultimately saying is that the ivory tower of music criticism, you know, is, is favoring white men. It's favoring white straight men who play guitars. And that there are people outside of that who would like their music to have critical consideration. I think that's kind of what it comes down to. Well, it's funny because we just spoke with an author on Merle Haggard, the country and Western star, and we drifted into a, a pretty long take on Ken Burns' country music uh, special, which just ran on PBS. We got into a similar argument about pop music. You know, the one issue that I have, I think, is that pop is short for popular, and that changes you know, daily, it seems today, but certainly generationally. So pop music is by nature a window into you know, something that's popular. Yeah, mm -hmm, absolutely. I mean, and that changes dramatically from generation to generation. Looking back at it through that eye, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what the legacy of Taylor Swift, Miley Cyrus, is it disposable? I, to me, pop music by its nature is disposable. It's hard to say because something, something I mentioned in my book when I'm talking about optimism is that there's this amazing Khalifa Sana quote where he talks about making the comparison of the incident at Comiskey Park with the demolition, you know, disco demolition. Right. You know, it was this idea that rock fans hated disco. And, you know, if I was listening to that at the time, I might have hated disco. But when you look at it now, you think of the other things that incident stood for, which is homophobia and racism and something that was supposedly just about the music wasn't just about the music. It was about the people behind the music. So this, you know, in these kind of debates over pop, optimism and rockism, you have people on the side of rockism who are saying, you know, what's, what's wrong with liking real musicians? But you have them making this comparison, and a lot of these articles really making the direct comparison between, like, Led Zeppelin 
and a female pop star. Right. What does it mean that they're giving pop a female face? You know, what does that mean for the thinly veiled misogyny that, you know, rock criticism has to reckon with now? I think part of it is that, you know, no one's saying you have to like pop. The idea is what can you learn from the way we talk about pop? How can that make you confront your own biases? And I think that was something I really learned in this book is that I, I was bringing in biases. And that's not to say, you know, that pop bands, I mean, I would argue that the Beatles are the earliest and greatest of all pop bands and they played their own instruments and wrote their own tunes and all that, you know, and that points back to pop being a shortened version of popular music. But um, I've never heard the Led Zeppelin, Miley Cyrus (laughs) argument, which is a fascinating one that could go on for days. Let's talk about the Shangri-Las. You know that simply by chronology, being at the end of the girl group era, they're not only the most rock and roll group, but also the most bizarre, the most theatrical. So something I found really funny when I was reading the scholarship on girl group music is that girl group scholars tend to really dismiss the Shangri-Las. It was really one note, it was sticky, it, they had one thing and that's what they did, and they ran it into the ground. And that's partially why I'm fascinated with them. <laughs> Part of what these scholars are, are remarking on is that The production in this music is so strange. You know, Phil Spector, you know, if he was trying to evoke a wave crashing on the beach, he's going to do some swelling orchestral string section. But Shadow Morton, who produced the Shangri-Las, is going to throw in a literal wave crashing. He's going to throw in a seagull cawing. In a way, I think that is part of what makes that music so endearing, is that it's very off. It's jarring. There's something about it that isn't quite pretty. And I think that's part of what is so amazing to me about Mary Weiss's voice is that she has this very particular voice. She's got this kind of nasally, it's very strong, but it's very nasally and it's instantly recognizable. And you point to New York, specifically Queens, which is where Mary Weiss, and I think all the girls uh, grew up. Yes. That, you know, their upbringing factors hugely into the music and play that against Detroit and the Motowns and the Supreme Girl bands. And there's obviously a cultural divide. You know, one of the things I really had to reckon with when I was writing this book is advantages that the Shangri-Las had by being white. And I think that's one of the main differences with Motown is that in order to make these singers marketable, they had to do so much with their image and they had to toe a line between being provocative but also being palatable. And I think with a group like the Shangri-Las, they were given a lot more free range over who they were allowed to be and how they were allowed to present themselves. And something I've seen them criticized for is I think a lot of people didn't really buy it. They didn't buy the, the tough girl thing. But from you know every account I've really read about about the people who interacted with them. You know, they were the real deal. They were from Queens. They used their accents. You know, a lot of the things they were singing about, even though they didn't write these songs, could have been part of their lives. You know, this idea of growing up on the streets, this idea of knowing the tough guy, you know, the guy with leather boots and the leather jacket, you know, knowing a biker, that it was, these were all things that were actually real to them. It wasn't just this kind of made-up fantasy. And you quote Ellie Greenwich, who's one of their chief songwriters, and she said they were not goody-goodies by any means. You know, there's a great interview with her where she's saying that she, you know, she wasn't a goody-goody, but she sees them come in, and they're, you know, they've got ripped stockings, and they're chewing gum, and they're swearing, and that she was kind of horrified because she was like, where did these, where'd you get these girls? And I think that that is something that 
it feels so true to who they are, where there was something that couldn't quite be tamed. And I think in some ways they were lucky that they were allowed to be that way because someone thought it was marketable. So they allowed them to bring their personalities to it without kind of being beaten down by this schema of how a girl group was supposed to act and look. It's funny. I, I wrote this as a question since we've been talking. Maybe it's more of a statement of, of what you've been saying, but I'll read it anyway. You know, you write about over-anxious parents and dysfunctional family models and boyfriend troubles and not wanting the traditional future that lies ahead. That at its core seems to me what almost all rock and roll is about. My question was, how do the Shangri-Las differ? And it seems that your answer is they don't. To me, that's, that's the point. And that's where they become an outlier slightly from the girl group sound is that they have this angst. It's written out of a lot of girl group music. You have this idea of these teen girls and they're having... You know, they're having boyfriend problems, but they're not having boyfriend problems like the Shangri-Las are. The Shangri-Las are having, you know, boyfriends drop dead left and right. And you have this this idea of really, you know, fearing the future. And I think that is something that I'm so fascinated by. I continue to be so fascinated when I listen to them and think about how honest some of it is. It may be melodramatic. It may be at some points overblown. But this idea that this is rock and roll, this, you know, distrusting the older generation, you know, not trusting that your parents know what's best for you or understand you or your world, knowing that there are things you are going to have to work out by yourself and no one is going to lay that groundwork for you. That's funny because that perfectly leads into my next question, which is a little maybe more gender based in terms of picking those nuggets out. But you write about the importance of the idea of counsel within girl groups as it presents a model for adolescent girls to follow. And you say that within the genre, that, quote, listening to mother's advice is often you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. But then you suggest that the singer in the girl group often becomes the de facto advice giver. So I got to ask you, what's a young girl to do? Part of this distrust of your parents, you know, your parents are telling you, break up with your boyfriend. No, you can't run away together. And that it always ends badly. And I think part of that is that it's this lesson that nobody quite figures things out. You become the advice giver. The parents become advice givers, but they don't know any more than you do. And part of the advice giving in the program music is that, you know, there is no perfect solution. There's no one way. And you mentioned, you know, no matter who the advice giver is, unfortunately, it seems a lot of the Shangri-La songs end in tragedy. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I was going to ask you to compare and contrast the Ronettes and the Crystals, and to a lesser extent the Supremes, but I think we've kind of done that in the sense that it's more of a manufactured thing and the Shangri-Las are more, you know, street tough or whatever you want to call it. And, and these songs that are less optimistic. You know, the Ronettes do have their own place in the story. I think, unfortunately, partially because of Phil Spector. You know, I think something that makes the Shangri-Las so different is that, you know, I love the Shangri-Las, but the, the level of vocal ability is really different in the Shangri-Las than it is with the Ronettes. I mean, you listen to Ronnie Spector, and she has a voice. And I think that there is something really interesting about the fact that the Shangri-Las were as successful as they are. And granted, there are a lot of different voices in the girl group sound. But the idea that Mary Weiss was able to build this career for herself out of a voice that was really unconventional, I think, really does set them apart when, for these girls, their vocal ability was their main selling point. You were quick to point out in the book, too, that, uh, you know, Mary Weiss is a central character, but the background vocals are critical as well. Absolutely. Part of one of the things that's challenging with the Shangri-Las is that, 
you know, we know so little about them. Mary West, you know, I did contact her actually for my book and she did not want to be involved. We know so little about their experiences. Writing about a, a group where Mary Weiss was posited as the central figure, and they did everything in their power to really emphasize that. You had the twins, Marge and Marianne Ganser, and every promotional shot, their dress, you know, completely alike. They have the same hairstyle, and then you have Mary Weiss with their long blonde hair in the middle. And there was a real visual element to that, but you know, the Ganser twins made huge vocal contributions. And without that, it really would not have been the same sound. We don't have histories on them. I think their part is really has disappeared, unfortunately. Yeah, that's a good point. Their songs pop up now and then, and everybody knows them. Everybody hums them. But, you know, you ask what their story is and you get a shrug. And, you know, I was part of that as well before I read your book. One of the things that came up, actually, when I was, you know, just looking at the track listing for this album is there's a song on it, What is Love? And I knew it wasn't Mary singing, but I've never been able to find who actually. I eventually came to the conclusion, which I do think is right, that it was Betty, Mary's sister, who was a sometimes member. But I felt like it was so telling that most of the time this, you know, vocalist is credited as Mary. But it's clearly not her. It's just a different voice. It's a different singer. I think for a lot of people, it didn't really matter because Mary was the singer. She was the focal point. And I think that's so telling. You know, you know the song and that's really all that matters. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're talking to Ada Wolin, who's the author of Golden Hits of the Shangri-Las, which is a featured book in the 33 and a Third series. Let's talk about the album that you chose. You had chosen a Greatest Hits compilation. It's only one of two in the entire series that I found. The other would be ABBA's Greatest Hits. So why a Greatest Hits? Doesn't that sort of blow out the concept of a great record? Or with girl groups, does you know I start I can see the argument that it reinforces it. I mean, I think part of it is challenging the idea of a great record. You know, there are bands that are singles bands, and the Shangri-Las was a group that was a singles group. And the idea of, you know, thinking about their best record, I chose what I think is their best greatest hits record. 
And I think that's a really subjective thing. And I, I know when my book came out, people were saying, well, what about this song? But I think to some extent, this felt like to me, this had the songs that I thought were the most interesting. This, you know, this one has, I can never go home anymore. It has, remember walking in the sands. And as leader of the pack, you know, these are the songs that make the Shangri-Las the Shangri-Las. I had to, you know, deal with some of the pitfalls of writing about, you know, kind of a normal album as well, because there's songs on Golden Hits that are a little tricky to talk about because they are different and they are kind of weird. Listening to Sophisticated Boom Boom, which is this very kind of odd song, and just like in an album where you have a song that's kind of a dud, you have to reckon with that. So I think my experience wasn't actually that different. It may be different in that you can't talk about, you know, who put together the track listing, but you can still talk about, like, how do you compare Leader of the Pack with Sophisticated Boom Boom? They're totally different songs. Right, and it might eliminate if there's a conceptual link of the record and the material on the record that draws a bigger picture. You know, this is not that type of record. But I, I agree, you know, the singles band, you know, it's absolutely. And I'd like to point out, self-serving, but I'm going to do it, is um, this record is not available on Spotify because they've released a lot of different definitive, you know, three CD compilations. And to me, that probably kind of blows out your point. So I have recreated this uh, track listing and it's up on, on the All Music Books page with your book cover on facing on it. So if people want to hear the exact record you're talking about, that's where you can find that. You know, that was something I actually felt terrible about after I pitched this book because I had the album on vinyl. So, you know, writing this book and then realizing basically halfway through when someone I was friends with was like, well, where do I find this album? And I had this moment of, oh my God, I'm writing about a book that's only available on vinyl, which, you know, I don't know how I feel about that, (laughs) but it's too late now. Hey, vinyl's back big, but, uh, you know, I think the mark of a good book success is if it sends people back to listen to it. And, you know, certainly it did with me. And to that point, and to your point about a singles band and the greatest hits, we did try and put that up uh, in its, you know, 30 minutes of glory. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the songs on the album. You mentioned a couple, and I want to circle back to some of them. You know, many are indelible. Some are a bit surprising or obscure, like you mentioned, for a greatest hits album. Something like Leader of the Pack, I've heard many times, that has an ending that you talk about that I never really noticed. You know, that's one of those songs where this, it really is the emblem of the sound of the Shangri-Las, which is this really jangly tragedy, but it's still really poppy, and it's not quite as dark as Remember. It is more like a traditional pop song. But it does have this ending that is, you know, you hear the motorcycle crash. There's no mystery about it. I find a lot of the use of backing vocals in that song really, really surprising. It's this kind of wailing at the end. The use of backing vocals in that song is really, people know that for the call and response or the kind of, you know, the the girl chat element of it. There's so much more to the backing vocals in that song that really brings an actual sort of musical weight to it rather than just storytelling element. And I think it is it is such a surprising song when you listen to it 10 times in a row, like I was doing. You know, so much more subtle, I think, than people realize. Yeah, it was the crash and the finality of that that I was speaking about. And, you know, it's, it's such a pure pop song that you don't really get that or, unless you're listening hard. You know, you wrote how Mary Weiss channeled a lot of her own pain into some of these songs, and specifically Leader of the Pack. She experienced this life of, you know, people coming in and out of her life. Her father died when she was very young. I think she had a very strained relationship with her mother. 
the boyfriend dying is such a trope in the Shangri-Las songs that doesn't really resonate in their actual lives. But the idea of having this life of wanting to be a part of something different, wanting to be a part of this fast world of the leader of the path, and then having to be reined in, having her parents say, break up with him. He's not a part of what we envision for your future. I think it's probably quite poignant for someone who's living a life of performing from the age of 14. You know, she was living a really unusual life. She missed her prom. She was touring Europe. I think that there are things that probably made her feel like she could relate to this being a loner. And I think that's a lot of what this type of the leader of the pack is. It's about, you know, being not quite cut out for the teenage world and not really knowing where to look to. You write the majority of the songs on the album are tragedies that center around one theme, but it's not the theme that most people might think. It's not love. It may seem like every song is a love song on that. When you really listen to them again, it's it's not this typical marriage-centered, I'm writing about my boyfriend because I'm so in love with him. It's It does have this weird, tragic element that does feel like the boy is almost a disembodied figure. Is the boy even really important, or is it about what he represents. And I think that that's something, when you listen to it over and over, you realize, you know, these don't feel like love songs. They feel so much darker than that. Yeah, I would agree after listening to it. You know, past, present, and future is a weird one. It's it's more of a spoken word piece than pop, but it does contain a great phrase, which you tie into a few places in your book, which is simply, at the moment, it doesn't look good. That's a song where I was like, oh, I gotta write about this. And I think even though I didn't like it at first, I, after listening to it over and over and over, I really realized that there was so much in it that just at first made no sense to me. You know, the whole spoken word piece, but it does have these amazing lines that are more like poetry than, you know, a pop song. This was the song that really started me on this idea of, we may not be able to think of it as a great album, but... There are similarities in the songs that start to create this worldview. And I think that that is the song that really started me thinking on this idea of how do they view the world? How do they view the future? And there is this sort of, at the moment, it doesn't look good. Well, and it's so open-ended, you know, it could be a boy, it could be your parents, it could be the night out, it could be anything, you know, and it could be in passing, it could be long-term. And it's, it's a great phrase. Yeah, Absolutely. Another great phrase, which happens to be a song title that you mentioned already, sophisticated boom, boom, that, mm-hmm. that, that is fantastic. And it's way more than your average girl group song. It, it veers into this weird kind of jazz thing. And I, I really like that song. I do too. And, and, and that was another one where in a way it doesn't really sound like the Shangri-La. So I struggled with fitting it in, but I think it does something that I think is similar to like a Be My Baby by the Ronettes. You know, it, it has this real agency. And there's a line in it, you know, where she says, uh, grab this little boy who's strutting across the room. And, and there's something where you're like, wow, that's kind of, that's bold. It's this very active kind of, like, this girl is on the prowl. It's very cool. You know, part of writing this book is that the Shangri-Las were just a cool girl group. They were interested in things that were just, interesting she they were interested in jazz they were interested in doing spoken word stuff they were down to try these things out and i think they're not really remembered for that they're remembered for the songs that sound like shangri-la songs they're not as much remembered for being really i think very adventurous and sophisticated yeah boom boom (laughs) 
We're speaking with Ada Wolin, who's the author of Golden Hits of the Shangri-Las in the 33 and a third series. We've talked a little bit about it, but one of the coolest choruses ever has to be uh, Remember Walking in the Sand. I mean, it's an absolutely iconic song, which is something that I think is sort of underplayed a little bit. The uh, Aerosmith cover of that song is incredibly straight, and that's something that is so fascinating when you look at the covers of the Shangri-La songs, is that for the most part, people don't mess with them. People know that they're they're kind of right the way they are. So remember, Walking in the Sand, is that's it's such a gorgeous song. And that one, you know, that had all these myths attached to it. There was a myth that there was a seven-minute-long version that had a young Billy Joel playing piano on it. This is part of the myth of the Shangri-Las, is that they had this figure, Shadow Morton, who was living this really shady life, and he was kind of pulling these songs out of nowhere. And the story about that song is that he pulled over to the side of the road on the way to the studio and wrote it in the car. That's part of the genius, is creating this kind of mysterious mythos of this group. Yeah, and I'm going to give you some credit for some mythos, because you've mentioned him twice now with Shadow Morton, and you draw a really interesting connection with one of his other bands, the New York Dolls. I think you like to place both the Shangri-Las and the Dolls in, in the same context. Can you illustrate that connection? Something that I really harp on probably a lot because I'm from New York is the New York connection between all of this. And the fact that how interesting it is that Shangri-Las, they sing in these really, really thick Queen's accents. And that's something that I think really draws this comparison, especially for me, to the New York Dolls, because it's this idea of not hiding your working class roots. But I think the fact that the New York Dolls loved the Shangri-Las makes so much sense to me on this level of melodrama. Because the New York Dolls, they are theatrical. They love the drama. They're tough guys, but they also have this androgynous kind of thing going on. And I think there's such a clear through line from the Shangri-Las to that because they were kind of doing that. They were doing the similar thing of being really flamboyant, but also like you would not mess with them. And also the connection between having Shadow Morton, who produced the Shangri-Las and wrote several of their songs, and then to bring the connection that he actually did produce an album for the New York Dolls. It just seems like it carries through so clearly. And of course, they crimped the uh, introduction to one of the songs as well, right? Yeah. L-U-V. When I say I'm in love, you best believe I'm in love, L-U-V. You know, and, and it's interesting, that one is really probably better known as being owned by the New York Dolls, which I think is perhaps unfair, but I think ultimately it's done with such love. And this is something I was really interested in when I was exploring covers of the Shangri-Las or quotations of the Shangri-Las, is the amount to which irony is brought into this. And I think the, the New York Dolls use it without irony. They are really using it in this very faithful way. And I mention a group like The Damned, who use, you know, is she really going out with him at the beginning of New Rose? And that the difference between the way that The Damned use that quotation and the way that the New York Dolls use their quotation is that The Damned use it in this way of using this sneering teen voice, and it's a little mocking, and it's a little cheeky. And I think The New York Dolls is really just pure quotation. It's just an echo of Mary Weiss. Really, the Shangri-Las are the first punk rock girl group, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And if I can impart anything from my book, I think that was an idea I came into it with, and that's the idea I left with. And I think I learned a lot along the way, but I still feel that without question, they were wearing things no one else was wearing. They were acting ways no one else was acting in that era. And I think that something that's so telling about them is that they didn't get real critical consideration, but they have such a cult following. 
you were to interview rock bands, I think that by and large, that would be the girl group that people remember. And I think it's that people saw this brashness. And I think it foreshadowed this idea of you can be rude, you can be crass, you can be, you don't have to be pretty all the time. And I think that to have a girl group in the 60s be doing that already is really, it's groundbreaking. So do you have an all-time favorite Shangri-La's tune? It's tough. I, I think I would have to go with I Can Never Go Home Anymore because that was really the first song for me that I just knew I loved this group because it's so haunting. It stays with you. That's a song that will give me chills every single time I hear it. One more thing I just have to ask, and you're, you know, you're obviously a very thoughtful and smart music fan. Do you ever just sit down and listen to music without analyzing it or deconstructing it and let it wash over you? I do, I do. (laughs) So what's on that soundtrack? Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned the Ken Burns country documentary because I have been watching that. I'm a huge country fan, and since I moved to New Orleans here, I've been listening to a lot of early Cajun music, which is really interesting for me because I don't speak French, and it's all sung in French. And so that is a music you have to feel the emotion behind it. And it's been very good for me. It's been a a good kind of detox from having to analyze music all the time. Do you sing along? Not well. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Good for you. Ada Wolin, are you working on another book? What's next? You know, I have so many ideas I'm constantly working on. I think, honestly, when I finished my book, I was like, I'm never going to write a book again. And then about a month later, I was ready. So, yeah, I got a couple things on the back burner. I wanted to take a little bit of a break after thinking about one album for so long. Well, it's a really good exploration of that record. Thank you for being on today, Ada Wolin, the author of the golden hits of the Shangri-Las. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us. Thanks so much for having me. If you'd like to find out more about her book, please visit allmusicbooks.com. You can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an all-music books podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 